the Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Episode 8, Christmas 2018. Season's greetings everyone, I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And welcome to the next of our podcast, our festive special. And Merry Christmas, almost. Almost. Before we get cracking on the uh, first of our Christmas episodes, we are going to dive straight into our gin review. Now this is one I've been looking forward to because it's one of my favourites, but it's we've looked at it on the shelf and it's the nearest we can get to a, a festive gin at the moment. So, Simon, what are we reviewing today? We're reviewing the Edinburgh Gin, the um, and it's the Rhubarb and Ginger Liqueur. And it's lovely. And we drink it in different ways. We do drink it in different um, ways. I drink it neat, because uh, I'm a bit more of a lush than you are. And I drink mine with ginger beer. So, Which, to be fair, is lovely. Um, I just prefer it neat. Now, it is a little bit sweeter with... Well, it's a liqueur for starters. It's a little bit sweeter with the ginger beer as well. So it's uh, more of a dessert gin. But it's... it's well, technically, beautiful. it's not a gin. It's a gin it's liqueur. A gin because liqueur. it's a, a cold press process. And I could get very geeky on how gins are made and what make, what comprises a gin and what comprises a, a gin liqueur. But I'm not going to subject you to that. At the end of the day, it's lovely. It it's rhubarby. It's gingery. And it doesn't really leave you with a thick head the morning after. There are certain gins uh, or certain drinks that can leave you a little tight behind the eyes. This is not one of them. It's a session gin, a session drink. Yes, absolutely. And on our brand new scale, I'm going to dive straight in and give it five Bernards out of five. I'm still sticking with four. We had one yet that's a five out of five for me. I I have had gins that have... um, Mm that I would rate it as five out of five, but we haven't reviewed one yet. Um, yeah, this is, I, I say that because it's the the first, or one of the first gins, it's been out quite a while now, but the one of the first ones that really leapt out to me and I enjoyed from the first mouthful to the last and I keep coming back to. So it, it's one of my go-to gins and a little bit of a treat for me. And it is lovely. It is. Highly right. recommended. So, on to Christmas. What have we got first? First off... Considering how entertaining it was for Halloween, we have the Christmas uh, edition of Podge and Rodge. Ah, oh, beautiful. And with, again, their musical aliases, Festa and Ailing, and they're doing a typically cheerful little Christmas number. Um, I'm not even going to tell you what the Christmas number is, because <laughs> that will be a surprise for you. But it is something that I have sung at the top of my voice in Belfast at Christmas. I've got some very, very old looks. Um, oh. with with my dear Northern Irish friend Nathan, who at some point may get round to listening to this, but he's probably a bit busy having a life. Right, so on with Podge and Rodge, and we'll see you on the flip side. Christmas bells are ringing, reeds hanging on the door, the fairies on the tree, presents on the floor. Santa Claus is coming, all the children's waiting's done. But I wouldn't hold your breath, kids, cause Aiden's got his gun. It was a quiet Christmas Eve, we were snuggled up in bed. We heard hooves upon the roof, that's when Aiden raised his head. He ran down to the front room, brandishing his gun. Aimed it up the chimney, shot the intruder up the bum. There's a dead man up the chimney, some call him Mosaic Nick. We shot him up the arse, we poked him with a stick. Oh, Christmas is cancelled, oh, 
There'll be no more presents, there'll be no more joy With the reindeer put down and the elves all unemployed Don't bother with the tree, no more excitement going to bed Cause Aelin shot out Santa Claus and pumped him full of lead There's a dead man up the chimney, some call him Mosaic We shot him up the arse and we poked him with a stick Oh, Christmas is cancelled, old Whitebeard is dead We tried to pull him down, we'll have to burn him out instead So did you slay Santa Aelin, what? Did you shoot him in the sack? <laughs> Rudolph has a red nose now, with blood Come on, kids! There's a dead man up the chimney, some call him Mosaic We shot him up the arse and we poked him with a stick Oh, Christmas is cancelled, oh, Whitebeard is dead We tried to pull him down, we have to burn him out instead Well, yes again, that was a lovely five minutes with of utter fluff um, <laughs> I love that the, the delight from um, Podger Rodge that we've just seen is their Christmas song, There's a Dead Man Up the Chimney. It, it is just a joy. They went to all the trouble of getting a tank. In the end credits, there was a, a thanks to uh, some guys at the barracks. So they've actually gone and asked if they can borrow a tank and the, use this, a tank. This was a big show in Ireland. Um, I don't, I've never heard of this thing before well, Halloween, you see. It's the first one that we're doing that um, is non-UK. And when I lived in Belfast is where I came across this because there are a few shows that are sort of Ireland, Northern Ireland specific. This, this is the one that um, leapt to mind when, when I thought about doing this just because it's so entertaining. Um, most of it isn't, aren't songs. They only do songs for mm. the, the special occasions. And I know we haven't done one of the non-song ones yet, but that will come. It's vaguely familiar, but I'm surprised it's never really... Crossed over to England and and been. I may, I may have sent you a YouTube link in the past. Yeah, no, but you'd have, that's got Channel Four stamped all over it, and yet I don't remember ever having seen it or heard of it in England. I'm surprised. <laughs> like I said, I, I that was hilarious. I remember seeing it when I lived in in Belfast. I've never seen it in um, on the channels in mainland UK. Well, but I'm glad you enjoyed it. I that loved was. it, yes. Just as much as the one on Halloween. So, um, a nice little way to gentle us into the rest of the Christmas special. What have we got coming up next? What we have coming up next is we're going to look at some of the ghost stories of Christmas. And we're going to look at the ones from the early 70s and the adaptations of M.R. James. And we're going slightly out of order because the first one we're going to start with is Lost Hearts. Because I love it and it's wonderfully creepy. And just for you, we're going to finish off with their adaptation of The Signalman. Ah, oh, wonderful. Best short story. Great, great stuff. So we have Bit that to look forward to, but first, Lost Hearts. Okay, well, that was the first of the stories at Christmas, and it was... Lost Hearts by M.R. James, and was really quite creepy. It was. I I know that the M.R. James stuff, it's spoken of quite fondly. I've never seen or heard a one, because there's a radio version as well. But I didn't realise that they were on every year. Was it? This was a big thing in the 70s. Yeah, um, starting 1971, right the way through to 1978, the BBC did a, um, a ghost story every Christmas Day evening. 
and for the first few years there were adaptations of M.R. James stories. The one that we've just watched was the one from 1973. Then they did an adaptation of The Signalman, and then they did a couple of new scripts, which to my mind don't work quite as well. Also mixed into, into there is um, The Stone Tape, which was a uh, ghost story at Christmas 1972, but not in the same strand. The one that we've just watched, really, if you break it down, it was about five minutes worth of story padded out very nicely mm. to half an hour. And there, and there was some lovely cinematography. There was. There's one particular shot where you start off focused on a spider's web, and then they, the focus goes back and you see the two ghosts. The old man, uh, again, played... To my mind, he's a cross between Peter Butterworth and Harry Seacombe to me, but this uh, Dickensian old man. Just, As we've just, uh, well, we've just sort of been having a, a, a watching open mouthed at this as it's played out. Social services would have been all over that man. So the, the story of this is um, a young orphan goes to stay with a distant cousin who is quite odd. Um, <laughs> and he starts off just being a bit weird and bookish. And then turns into a um, turns out that he's a murderer and has killed two other children in previous years on their twelfth birthday. Cuts out their hearts, burns them, and drinks the ashes as a way of trying to become immortal. And the 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 two ghosts of the um, the boy and the girl that he's already killed coming back to try and warn the new lad who turns up. And actually, he doesn't take any of the hints at all. Not at all, no straight into the trap and drinks the drugged wine and passes out and it's down to the ghosts to um, to exact revenge on the, the creepy old uncle. Children's Nerve. It's very creepy. It is very creepy. I mean, if uh, if an old man came to you, family or not, and said, uh, boy, come to me at midnight. It'll be our secret. Don't and tell anyone don't else. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell your father. We'll give you a special gift. What better than a special birthday gift from your creepy cousin at midnight on Halloween? And then uh, hey, drink this. Drink I mean, this drunk wine. To, right? Well, well, just you're, you're going to. You're going to. Sit down, yeah. And then I'm going to rip your shirt open and when start. When you're unconscious, it, it was all very, very. A more innocent time. <laughs> I'm not sure there was anything about that that was innocent. <laughs> it's, it's not the word that leaps to no. mind. It wouldn't get made today, let's put it yeah. that way. Although the whole drugs thing was an unfortunate foreshadowing, because the um, the actor who played Stephen in this died at the age of 28 of a drugs overdose. Oh, what a lovely story. Mind you, he didn't do much better, the uh, the old fella. He was only, you said 42 when he died? No, it's the servant who was 42. Ah, um, right. The fellow who played the uncle lived into his 90s. Oh, right. As, as did the... The other cast member who stayed, who played the the female servant, Mrs. Um, Mrs. Budge, yeah. And in terms of who alumni, there is the boy was in the, the Horns of Nymon. The boy was in Horns of Nymon as Seth, and the servant was in Wheel in Space as Flanagan and the mutants as Varen. Always research for who alumni. Everything we watch. Well, actually, generally we don't. Oh, we do. We're doing it with one of the previous podcasts for Kavanagh QC. So it's on with the next one that you've chosen, which is... Which is The Ash Tree, which is the, um, the show from 1975. Play on. Your late uncle, sir. Old benefactor. Thank you, sir, for failing to wed a wife. 
But I shall not be so prodigal a nephew. His uncle, master of Castringham before him, the great Sir Matthew. Uncle to uncle. I trust the descent shall be more direct from now. So do we all devoutly hope, Sir Richard, sir. Soon you shall be taking your instructions from the Lady Augusta. Aye, sir. A new mistress. Please, God. That one was a little bit more odd. I'm not entirely sure what the hell was going on there. Um, I'll let you explain the, the basic premise of the episode and then we'll go into it. Okay, the story of the ash tree is about a noble a nobleman, I think in the 1700s, judging by the, the um, dress, yeah. Dress and the, the very old hairstyle, um, who inherits a country house from his uncle. And when he gets there, he, re- he finds out that there's been no direct descendants for the last couple of hundred years. And the action splits between that time and a couple of hundred years previously, where um, witch finders come to the area and the squire at the time accuses a local woman of being a witch. And she's executed as a witch and puts a curse onto the, the family that no direct descendant will come, which is why it's been passed from uncle to uncle to uncle and there's been no direct inheritance. And she, the, before she's hanged, the witch also says that her children will inherit. In the later time period, the, um, the Lord is planning to get married and he also decides that he doesn't like the room that he's, that he's been put into and he wants to um, go into another bedroom that it looks directly onto a big ash tree that they have outside the, the room. He has an architect who's coming to advise him on alterations to the house who suggests that the ash tree be cut down. He decides to do that, but the night that he makes that decision, he's in his bed with the window open, and the inhabitants of the ash tree, which are the witch's children, come and kill him and drink all his blood. And by inference, that's how the previous uh, lord died. And the witch's children are really quite creepy. They're, they're kind of spiders with babies' heads. And, yes, and, and there's then, a lot of them. Yeah, and then they're noticed by a servant who comes in to check on Sir Matthew. And they go back into the ash tree. She throws a... Um, an oil lantern at the ash tree and it burns down and there's really quite a nasty scene where a couple of them drop out of the ash tree and get squashed um, and that's all a bit bloody and then in the ashes of the trunk of the ash the next day they found, find a baby skeleton mm. or a child skeleton so it's, it's an odd mix it starts off really quite slow and wordy and then the last five minutes or so are really quite unpleasant yeah I mean he is clearly coming to this mansion already fascinated by his own family's history. I mean, he's just plagued by memories that aren't his and flashbacks to things that he is either, well, he must have read about. Um, but it's all very melancholy. He's just, he just seems completely obsessed with his own family's history. And I don't know, that one doesn't sit terribly well with me for Christmas Day viewing. It's just weird. That's, that's more Halloween viewing than Christmas Day, that. Oh, they, these, are, these are all <coughs> really creepy stories. Mm. I must uh, the previous one, the, the Lost Hearts, that was just Victorian, well, semi-paedophilia. Uh, that one was just weird, the Astro. That, that didn't, not for me, not my, not my cup of tea. Okay, so shall we move on to something that is a bit more your, your cup of tea? Well, well, before we do, honourable mention to Lala Ward. Oh, yes, Astro, yes, we had uh, a few, the Who alumni, we had uh, Lala Ward... 
who not a massive part in this, but um, uh, she plays the current squire's um, fiance. Fiance. Who do, and she does a lot of riding around on horses and looking haughty. Which is what she does best. Yeah, and it, it, this would be uh, three years before Princess Astrid. Mm, about, yeah. And also Preston Lockwood, who was Dogen in Snake Dance. Um, and that was about, well, that was about seven or eight years before Snake Dance. Beyond that, we've not really looked into it. We're just stunned by baby, baby head spiders climbing out of trees and Smashed witches. Smashed bloody pole. Yes. Let's move on to something... Uh, something more your cup of tea, which is the signal moment. Ah, Dickens. through the tunnel over the spot where the figure had stood that was the last of our Christmas stories The Signalman by Charles Dickens uh, from 1976 I think that one 78 78 was it I loved it just as as a character piece if nothing else I, I really like it I think it's very effective atmospheric I've never read the original short story, so I don't know how true it is to the It's story. not so far off. Yeah, it's pretty good. Fantastic performance from Dan Elliott. Um, really creepy effects. It's basically just um, the story of a, a man who sees a signalman on the railway tracks by a tunnel mouth and calls out to him and basically just wanders down for a chat. The signalman thinks that he's somebody else at first, and over the course of the story... Uh, the signalman, the he, the traveller, goes back uh, for a couple of nights just to chat to the signalman, and it, it turns out that his story is actually he keeps seeing this spectral figure who appears and calls out warnings by the tunnel mouth when there's about to be an accident, and it's troubling him because he can't prevent the accident. The actual job of the signalman is portrayed to be a very boring and laborious one. There's no romance in it at all, but Denham Elliott's performance, just it's just beautiful. Just the way the two of them just interact in two men. It's basically a two-hander for 35 minutes or whatever it was. It was lovely. Yeah. Um, it's the most compelling of the three that we've watched. Mm, it is, yeah. Uh, I love railway stories to start with. I think the setting lends itself very well to particularly Victorian-era stories or turn-of-the-century stories, you know, there's not really much that you can go wrong with with uh, a crackling fire and a ticking clock at Christmas. And that's basically been the background noise for half an hour in between train whistles and chuffing along the line. Yes, and there's something very atmospheric about steam trains. Mm. I know one of the people who um, does the Kirby Stephen Steam Railway, so I've been along to a few of their events, and... It's a great feeling just chugging along on that little train. Yeah, it only goes a mile or so on the track and then back again. Well, we're lucky enough in East Lancashire, there's a, the East Lancashire Steam Railway, and that again, it's just a great day out. Just getting on a train is a day out. Mm. Um, it which sounds ridiculous when you say it out loud, but there's something magical about these engines, and indeed they used to captivate the people who worked on the railways in a way that they don't now, that people would go into work early to polish the engine because they took a real pride in the job. 
again, even in that story, it's uh, conveyed that the signalman takes pride in his job and his responsibility, even though it's very dull. And he's been quite traumatised by a couple of things that have happened to him. But it's the way they described. The first uh, accident where he describes a, a crash in a tunnel, you know, the compressed metal and burning carriages. And, and turning it into a, turn, tunnel, turning into a furnace. A furnace and the screams of the passengers as the burned alive echoing down the tunnel. Yeah, I can see why that would be a little bit traumatic to a signalman, or indeed anyone. Yeah. There's not a right lot to say about it. The, the ending of it, I've always felt is a little... It doesn't really resolve the story. It's, it turns out that the last warning that was called out uh, was actually the footman on the train calling out to the signalman as he stood at the tunnel mouth, and that's uh, the, the signalman eventually gets hit by the train that he's gone to try and save because he thinks that there's a, an accident going to happen. It, he didn't realise that he was the accident. But it doesn't really account for the previous two spectres that he saw that have called him to the tunnel mouth in the first place. So... It's a little bit, it's not the greatest resolution, but looking at it as a story on the whole, just a, just as a, a little uh, short story, I just love that, just for what it was. Yeah, and I think the whole echo of the warning hmm. going back into the, the past and that, and that being what he sees for, for other disasters, I actually think that works quite well as a, as a plot device. It, it works. Because it, it, sort of, yeah. it ties it into, and <clears throat> it's been done again since, yes. and it's... I think it's been done better in, yes. in other things since. Mm. But it's like the Sherlock Holmes stuff. This is the this is the original. Yeah. This is where that plot device mm. first came from and has been repeated because it's as effective as it is. Yeah. So I, I, I thought it was a very good adaptation of a very creepy story. That was good winter viewing. If not Christmas, certainly winter viewing. You could. Yeah, we're watching this in the, the bright daylight um, and it should really be, be a late night thing. By a crackling fire with a glass of port. But alas, it's cups of tea and coffee this morning. It is. So that wraps up our little Christmas viewing list. Did so is that some... going to get added to your Christmas routine? Because I know you have a Christmas routine. I do routine. have a Christmas routine. It may well do, because that's worthy of... Uh, that might be cold winter's day stuff, that, as opposed to Christmas. But I do like that story. Because oh, really? Christmas Carol is still my favourite story. It get, I watch it every Christmas. The Muppet version, I hasten to add. I just I love everything about The Muppet Christmas Carol. I think it's the perfect adaptation of that story. The book itself, I'm working my way through the Christmas books. I've read Christmas Carol again, which for those who haven't read it, I've not seen an adaptation that is as bleak as the book itself. There's always some, if not comedy element, they... they whimsy it up a little bit. There's nothing as bleak and grim as that book. Apart from the other stuff that Charles Dickens wrote, because he's not a cheery author. Oh, no, he's not. Um, and I've read... Last year I read The Cricket on the Hearth, which isn't Dickens at his best, I, I have to say. It's, it's not something I'd ever go and revisit, and I'm not surprised that it's never been... Well, to my knowledge, it's never been adapted. I've only read a couple of Dickens things. I've, I, I have read A Christmas Carol, and it's not cheery. And I read Bleak House. And I... The title kind of gives away. <laughs> yeah, it does. How cheery that's going to be or not. Um, and they're good and they're well written, but you don't want to start it off feeling a bit down in the dumps. Not really, no. But I will leave, uh, well, I'll finish this section of, of podcast by saying that um, one of my staples for Christmas viewing, and it has been for quite a few years, is actually K9 and Company. For those who've never watched it, Christmas Eve isn't a bad late afternoon on Christmas Eve. It's just starting to go dark. 
treat yourself to K9 and company. Now ignore the title music and Sarah Jane faffing about with glasses of wine and jogging pants and typewriters outside and watch it as a bit of Christmas fluff. It really works well. I've always liked K9 and company. Yeah, um, the thing that I watch most Christmases is Bell Book and Candle. Which I haven't seen for a long time. And you tend to think of it as a sort of witchy in New York mm. thing, which it is, but it's also set around Christmas. Yes. So do write in with your suggestions for Christmas viewing and uh, maybe we can review them in the future. But for the time being, uh, I think we can sign off and wish everybody a Merry Christmas. And we'll be back in the new year with the next in the series of podcasts. Merry Christmas, everyone. And Merry Christmas to all of you at home. Hello everyone, Ken here. The next segment is an interview with Colin Baker. I recorded this at a fan event called Who in the Cavern, which was arranged by Erica Edgerton from the Wirral Doctor Who group in 2006. So, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Are you enjoying the day? I've had a very pleasant I'm, day. I've worked here a bit. It's very Everything. nice to be here. I it's lovely. Come here. Nobody's ever said that to me in my life, I'm sure. <laughs> We should need microphones. I'm an actor. <laughs> Can you hear me now? Yeah. Are you enjoying the new series? I think the new series is fab. Do you know, when it, when it came back, I thought, it's going to be awful if it, if it really isn't very good, and I'm going to have to give my opinion about it. But it's such a relief to be able to say, we all, we've all had minor criticisms. We had my, major criticisms with some of my stories. But uh, minor criticisms aside, I think the production values are fantastic, the characters are fantastic, the look of it is superb, I love the new TARDIS, and just as I had Nicola, it, um, the new companion is pretty ace, and she's, she's, the, she's the Nicola Bryant of her age. Yes, yes, I think she'll keep most men watching the programme, <laughs> as my friend Nicola did. To be fair, when I heard that we're going to have Billy Piper, who I'd never seen mm-hmm. do any acting, I knew her purely as a kind of teeny popper singer. Uh, to play the companion, I thought this is Doctor Who consigned to you know, the backwater of television, and I have to eat humble pie. She is not only very good in this part, but she's a fantastic actress. She's very she good. really is a very good actress. You could call the series Rose, mm-hmm. in fact. Well, yes. Because I mean, what has happened is that uh, instead of being Doctor Who, who is followed around by little minions, mm-hmm. we're looking at something quite interesting, which is the effect that this doctor has on the ordinary people's lives that you meet. So I love the fact that her mother belted him around the face and called him a dirty old man. Because that's what would happen. (laughs) It is rooted in reality. I love the jealous boyfriend. When I heard that Sarah Jane was coming back, I groomed him with me again. And not only did I think that, I had to be put my hand on my heart, so I never really warmed to the character of Sarah Jane Smith. I found her all a bit kind of, not, not entirely credible. Last night I thought Sarah Jane Smith was magnificent. It was a very moving story, and I had a lump in my throat at the end. And I thought it was beautifully written. It was well written. Beautifully done. Beautifully done. And that whole thing about what it's like to be a companion when you're left behind, and the doctor continually gets younger or doesn't get older, and you're left with memories. Something that was never explored. I just thought that was stunning. I think Russell T. Davis, as he says himself, is a genius. <laughs> <laughs> but he is. He is. He's a, 
he's a television maker in the old sense where you know one person has a vision and has the the, the passion and the size mm. so not just his physical size but of talent to mm. put it into onto the screen mm. and we're very lucky that someone with his you know kind of charisma and, and ideas um, has been allowed to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think Very it, unusual in television these days. Do you think it will go on and on again? I think it will go as long as they want it to. Um, mm. I, I think it's got a good five years in it. Mm. Um, I, th I think you might need to look at the scripts a bit. The stories, not the scripts. The scripts mm. are fine. I think the stories could be cracked up a bit. Mm. I'd like to see the Doctor being cleverer. I'm a little bit anxious about the Doctor being almost a god, as was yeah. implied last week. Yeah. I am above all of you. I am where it stops. Not entirely sure, but I'll I'll go with it and see what happens. Well, should we go back to 1982? I wish well, I could. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll be back in school. I'm Peter, Peter Davison had hair, so did I. <laughs> um, Ark of Infinity, your very first Doctor Who. Maxill. Maxill. When you were appearing aside the lovely Peter Davison. <laughs> I, I tend to it as he was appearing beside me. <laughs> the series was called Maxill. It wasn't it, was it? Maxill the Guard. With Esmeralda. Part two. You yeah. all know the Esmeralda story, don't you? Yeah, but we love it. Do you love it? Yeah. Well, the, the whole thing about Maxill, it, it, was, it was very interesting. Because the first thing that happened was I got a phone call from my agent saying, I was doing a play in Brighton, I think, then. And uh, my agent said, you've been offered a, a part in Doctor Who. I said, oh, continue to sound very enthusiastic. I said, well, I, I read in the paper recently that if you play the part in Doctor Who, when they're recasting the Doctor, they're not likely to consider you. They've never cast it from anybody who's been in it before. And my agent said, don't be ridiculous. I don't want to ask you to do Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, yeah, you're probably right. And, uh, and it fitted in perfectly with my schedule, so I agreed to play the part of Maxill in the Ark of Infinity. Just as each one of you is sitting there now, each one of you is surrounded by the rest of us. You are you, inside yourself. You're you. You are the star in your own show. You're not a bit part player. You're the lead, right? Well, so was Maxill. <laughs> so I didn't see this as a play about someone scurrying around the great doctor. I saw him about this irritating man who was, who was making Maxwell's life difficult for him. And the producer came to see the producer's run, dear John Nathan Turner, and came across to me afterwards and said, are you under the impression this show is called Maxi? <laughs> I said, yes. <laughs> and he laughed. And we, we got on very well. And he said, it's one of the most arch performances I've ever seen, because I was standing behind Peter going, <sighs> sighing heavily and doing my fingernails and doing all that. And he said, I'm going to call you Archie. And he christened me Archie. He called me Archie for a long time. And said, stop it. <laughs> you're, you're pulling focus. But which didn't is that a bit ultimately lead to you being cast as the doctor? I haven't finished the story. Oh, I've been put in my place. <laughs> um, and one of the things that I had done was uh, I had this hat, a hat with a feather on it. And they discovered that wearing a hat, which is what they wanted me to do, it looked ridiculous. Uh, I couldn't get walk through any of the doors on the set because they were higher, they were only just a bit higher than my head. So to have the, the head of the Gallifrey guard ducking to go through doors, and he said, take your hat off and carry it. So I carry it, and then this feather stuck up in front of my face. So I tucked the feather end of, um, over the hat under my arm, 
And then it looked like I was carrying a chicken. <laughs> so I gave the chicken the name Esmeralda, and the chicken tended when Peter Davison was talking to go. <laughs> Janet Fielding, but nobody else. <laughs> and I was told to stop doing that as well. Yes. Um, anyway, you're quite right, moving the story on. It was, it was that that made John Nathan Turner some six months later when Peter said he wanted to clear off. And, not because you'd shot Peter. Not story. because I'd shot Peter. <laughs> no, Peter decided that he was rubbish as the doctor. He needed to go and find a job he was good at. And so he asked him if he could leave. And they said, yes, please, off you go. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> one male, one female. Anyway, Peter was wonderful. Uh, I, just in case anyone takes me seriously, uh, I'm joking, Peter. Uh, I'm not. I'm joking, Peter. <laughs> um, so yes, uh, it was my my performance as Maxwell, and and perhaps my John Nathan all says. The key moment for him was a wedding, a real yeah, wedding, of a lovely lady called Lynn, who was our floor assistant on the show, who I got on very well with, and she was a nice girl, and she got married, and she invited me, and John Nathan Turner was there. And it was a lovely afternoon, it's one of those days, in all of our lives, there's a day at the end of which you think, I, not only did I enjoy myself, but I was really me today. I was quite amusing, people laughed at my jokes, people never laugh at my <laughs> jokes, but on that day, people laughed at my jokes. John Nathan Turner saw me on that one day in my life when I heard people were laughing at my jokes and thought he could be my next doctor. And it's pure chance. So I want to say to anybody out there, you never know what's going to happen. Because I knew he didn't go to that wedding. And if I hadn't gone, well, I certainly wouldn't be sitting here now. Didn't he actually say to someone, I think I found my new doctor? He did. Well, I wasn't going to say that. But I he, did. But he said, he said that to Gary Downey, who was Yeah, he said, I think I found my new doctor. I think doctor. I found my new doctor. And didn't they take you out? Was it they took you out for lunch? Or did they brought I you in? I invited him around to, to his office about a month or two later. Did you get a lunch? No, uh, I can't remember. I thought it was about that you took out for lunch, isn't it? No, I didn't get it on that occasion. And I was given a load of tapes of all the old doctors and told to go away. Think about how I'd like to play it. And did That's you enjoy watching all the tapes of them? I did. Even the Patrick Troughton 300-hour version of the War Games. <laughs> At the end of watching it, I decided that I wanted to be grumpy and dressed in black. <laughs> so what, was I? what was I? Manic and dressed in a rainbow. <laughs> Chris Redson got my costume. He did? And he also went around telling everybody that he was the first person who uh, came from the north who played Doctor Who like, you know, happened at home. in one of the magazines saying, I like Chris Riddle's performance enormously. I thought he was a great doctor, very, very good. But what's with the northerner bit? You know, I'm a northerner. You know, all the other doctors talk posh. We weren't allowed to talk with our own accents when we were doing it. If I'd said, could I play the Doctor Northern, they wouldn't have let me do it. It's just the fashions have changed. I come from Manchester. Tom Baker came from Liverpool. Paul McCann comes from Liverpool. 
Sylvester McCoy comes from Scotland, that would normally be a guest. What's this northern bit? Yes, it was a bit. That really does irritate me. But that aside, he did it very well. He did do a good job. He did a good job. I think David's even better. Yes! Because David's added in that kind of humour thing as well. I think he's got it spot on. And there's a kind of glee. Imagine Christopher Eccleston. I loved Christopher Eccleston's moment. I love that thing where the spaceship comes across and bashes about a Big Ben and, and he goes, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> I like the doctor being enthused by something happening. But what I didn't like is the way he treated that Dalek. I did the original version of that story on... Uh, Jubilee, was On Ju Jubilee, on audio. And I felt sorry for the Dalek. And I had a go at the people who were torturing it. Christopher Eccleston wanted to kill it. Mm. <laughs> Come around killing Dalek? What <laughs> <laughs> Where did the next story come from? He shot the cyber Yeah, yeah, he's a bastard. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the cyber but what was interesting is because it made the doctor human. Because when I shot the cyber controller, I was you angry. Loved it. I was <sighs> angry. And besides, I've always wanted to go back. I've always wanted as an actor to be the one with the guns. Go. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I, I have wanted, I have wanted to be Sylvester Stallone. There was a film on last night, Cobra, with guns and shooting <laughs> and, killing and blowing people off roofs. I've always wanted to do that. So, cyber controller, sorry, you, you had, need, you need had forty years of. Get yourself a PlayStation. Shoot, shoot. No, I can't. I'm not good with thumbs. Oh, well. Right, and so you were watching your tapes and uh, you. Had they offered you the part then, or did they just send you away with these No, things? I was to come back and say how I thought I would like to play it, and I came back and said how I thought I would like to play it. Then I had to go upstairs and meet David Reed, who was the, the head of series at that time, who was uh, watching the cricket. And I was a cricket was, fan, wasn't he? He was yeah. a cricket fan. And I said, oh, how... Because it was a test match, and mm -hmm. it was Ian Botham. And I, I'd been sitting in the car park listening to the test match, mm -hmm. thinking, oh, I've got to go and accept this job, Doctor Who, and listen to the cricket! And I uh, went upstairs and John took me in, because John couldn't care us about sport of any kind. And there was David Reed, this man who had to say yay or nay. And he was watching the cricket, so we sat down and watched the cricket together and talked about cricket, with John going, you know, <laughs> in the background. And he thought I was all right because I liked cricket. I got the part. You got the part. So your first day on set, what, what did you feel? It's interesting. I am, I'm an actor who is nervous on first nights. And I'm still nervous in television, but, you know, actors' nerves. They, uh, but sometimes they, they can be very powerful. You think, even Lawrence Olivier used to do this. Uh, actually, uh, this, is even with, this is going to be the one that defeats me. I'm going to, if I wasn't too afraid to run away, I'd run away. The only time I've never felt that was playing Doctor Who. If you can explain that, the biggest part I've ever played, and yet I wasn't, I wasn't really nervous. I just felt, yes, this is the one that I want to do this. I understand this, I feel inside that this is right for me. Mm -hmm. And I, I really enjoyed my first day in the studio. And I went home to my wife, who was sitting reading a book, and I went, didn't have any children then. And I walked into the living room in our little cottage we lived in, and a little Dutch cottage then in Oxfordshire. And I came in and I went, I am the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> and she went, Oh, that's nice. Could you put the rubbish out? <laughs> Which is why I love my wife, because she put it all in perspective. And I went and put the rubbish out and put on with the job. But that is how I felt, though. 
You've never felt that, I have. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> great. It's a great it's thing. Yeah. So, your regeneration scene with, I won't mention his name, but did he say anything to you when you sort of like... You know, you answer this question, don't you? Because, no. well, <laughs> I've been hanging around all day waiting to do, because it was his final episode, it was a very good story too. It's my favourite. It was a great story. And things were going wrong horrendously and they had to ditch the, the magma monster at the end, which was this huge animatronic creature that had been built, probably the cost of, you know, this naff monster that was actually not quite good, but when you compare what they can do now, and it probably costs more than what it costs to do what they do now. And these guys had worked hard making this thing with rods and electronic controls, and there wasn't any time to film it, so they just dumped it on the floor and said, Not your lucky day, was it? Stepped over it with his bat juice, um, whatever it was called. What was it called? Um, Queen Bat's Milk. And then they said, quick, we've got to do the regeneration scene, and I did it, and what have you. And afterwards, it was all finished, it was Peter's farewell party, and you know, everyone was going, oh, Peter, we're going to miss you, my <laughs> <laughs> um, And I, I went up to Peter and said, well done, and he said, no thanks. I said, any tips? And he went, no. <laughs> <laughs> Did you give any doctorly advice? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing at all, no. Spanish illusion. Quite disappointing. <laughs> um, no, it was nothing like that whatsoever. Uh, but what he had done, of course, was that he wound up Nicola Bryant. Because he said to Nicola, um, because you know Brian Baker's taking over, don't you? She said, yeah, he said, do you know anything about him? He said, no, no, not for me to say no. Well, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> And he'd been doing that to her for weeks, apparently. <laughs> so I wondered why she was so odd. <laughs> it, took, it took an awful long while to, to win her round. Because Peter had deliberately gone, Colin Baker, <laughs> it's not going to be the same. God, you're going to miss me. So not only did he not help me, he hindered me. <laughs> so when you got rid of Peter and it was the twin dilemma, did you feel, right, I'm in charge here? Yeah. It? This is it. And did you enjoy working on the twin dynamic? Oh, I did, of course. I didn't know that it was a fairly rubbish story at the yeah. time. <laughs> and, and having watched it again, it's not as rubbish as some people think it is. But it's not great. It's not classic stuff. It's not Caves of Andrews. It holds its own. But it's, you know, well, it holds something. Maybe not its own, but it still holds something. No, it really was fine to work on. Yeah, the, those twins were not the best, bless them. They were nice lads and they did very well. Do you think it was a mistake putting your first story on the end of like Peter's last season? Would you have preferred it to like you start the next season, have your regeneration, and then start the next season as the Doctor? I don't know. I have no objective eye about that. I think it was an interesting idea. It was. And I think on balance, I think it wasn't a mistake. And the reason I think it wasn't a mistake is if you do the regeneration, you've got no idea what's coming next. And I think it was quite brave and cheeky to set me up as the kind of very unsympathetic doctor mm. that uh, w w was visible for most of mm. Twin Dilemma. Mm. You know, the one who threatened, well, wanting to strangle Perry yeah. and things like yeah. that. I thought that was quite fun because it left an audience for three months going, you're a doctor, he's amazing, he's not nice, we don't like him. Well, saying that, make them tune in and see what happens. Yeah, yeah. It, so. I like television that takes you by surprise. Yeah, right? yeah. I, I like it. I do remember it, I mean, it was, I, was, I was fairly young. 
1984, but I do, actually, I do actually remember it. I remember being a bit heartbroken piece of the evening, but very excited. <laughs> very excited about the evening. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently I had a bit of a tantrum when we go to school. How sweet. <laughs> anyway, we... Do you have a tantrum that must have taken place when Sylvester McCoy appeared? <laughs> Yeah, I, I went to school then. Schools were empty that day. And we'll be presenting the rest of that interview in segments in future podcasts. To sign us off this time, we've got a recording of The Night Before Christmas, which my sister asked me to make for my niece. The Night Before Christmas by Clement C. Moore. "'Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house "'not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. "'The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, "'in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. "'My sister and I were nestled all snug in our beds, "'while visions of sugar plums danced in our heads, "'and Mama in her pyjamas and Father in his cap "'had just settled down for a long winter's nap. When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, I sprang from my bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the curtains and threw up the sash. The moon shining onto the new fallen snow gave the luster of midday to objects below. When what to my wondering eyes should appear but a bright red sleigh and eight bright-eyed reindeer. With a jolly old driver so lively and quick, I knew in a moment it must be St. Nick. More rapid than eagles, his reindeer they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen, on Comet, on Cupid, on Donner and Blitzen. To the top of the porch, to the top of the wall, now dash away, dash away, dash away all. As dry leaves that before the wild hurricane fly, when they meet with an obstacle rising up in the sky, so up to the housetop the reindeers they flew, with the sleigh full of toys, and St. Nicholas too. Then in a twinkling I heard on the roof the prancing and pawing of each reindeer hoof. As I drew in my head and was turning around, down the chimney St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in red from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry! His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His friendly mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard of his chin was as white as the snow. He had a broad face and a little round belly, that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him, in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon let me know I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work, and filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk. And laying his finger on the side of his nose, and giving a nod up the chimney he rose. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team gave a whistle, and away they all flew like the seeds of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim before he drove out of sight, 
Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night. Hope you've enjoyed listening, everyone. Merry Christmas, and we'll be back in the new year. The Exton Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss, and the title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra. All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers, and no infringement of copyright is intended. The programme was recorded in Rushton, Lancashire, and produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit our website at extonmossexperiment.blogspot.com or find us on Facebook.